Such a beautiful song, and that's the choice of our guest presenter, Dion Chang. He's the founder of Flux Trends. He's also moving into some particularly interesting spaces as we move forward. Arlo Parks and the song Hope. Dion, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Michelle. I um, <laughs> thought that that would be a, a good um, song to play for just the general mood, but I didn't uh, anticipate that we'd be playing it at the backdrop of stage six load shedding from last night. So, so Dion, talk to us a little bit about that choice of song. You say it, you know, you thought it would be something good for us. And as you say, at the, on the back, <clears throat> with the backdrop of stage six, well, but it is a beautiful song that does talk to the concept of hope and that you're not alone. And yet, do you believe it? Do you believe in that? I I believe, uh, you mean, in, do I believe in hope? Or do, oh, I believe do, you believe in, do you believe in hope? I, I think we have to. Um, you know, just I've been having a lot of these conversations with, with, with people and, you know, it's really, really easy to, to slide into just this sort of morass of 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 doom and gloom and and you know everything's just um you know there, there's this lovely Afrikaans word which which has just got the best mouthfeel and I, I use it often because it just describes not only sort of what we feel is happening in South Africa but I think just generally in the world <clears throat> that that um the word is ontrafel so it, it it's just unraveling but it's just got such a lovely feel in your mouth and it just describes exactly the sort of um they call it learned helplessness. So that we've gone through two years um, of of um, anticipatory grief, and and some of us have have experienced incredible grief as well um, during during the last two years. But um, you know they're, they're saying we we we've emerged from the last two years in 2022 with with worry burnout, and and worry burnout is this this learned helplessness that you that you've you've experienced just of not knowing what's going to happen or really bad things have happened. And we thought 2022 was just going to be this sort of ease into some kind of normalcy. And um, we now discovered that 2022 had a few more surprises up their sleeves, and we've still got another quarter of the year to go. So I just, <laughs> I'm holding my breath. And so, yes, I do believe in the in the concept of hope, because I, I think you actually, I think especially now, you have to make it a conscious decision to to really appreciate the small things because you're going to be overwhelmed. And, and mm. if you, if you allow that to happen, then, then, you know, then all is lost, but, but you, you've got to just hang on to, to some, some threads and things like that. And, you know, so it's, I know it's a bit like throwing a, a starving dog, a rubber bone, but um, <laughs> one, one has to, one really has to do that. So you've got to try and keep that mindset and, and to say, you know, the, the sun is shining. Um, and, and although it's, you know, there's this, this undercurrent buzz of generators that you're hearing on a Sunday morning, um, the sun is shining and you, you, you try and find some kind of yeah, uh, joy and hope in that. Dion, I've, I was thinking about the fact that um, you, when you started Flux Trends, we were in a very different South Africa. I mean, you started it over a decade ago, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, uh, yes, it's about 16 years ago now. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and I was wondering, at the time when you were looking at trends and you were looking at trends and analyzing trends and looking at how we could look at them as for business opportunities, then... As opposed to this world that we are currently in, which, you know, they've been described, described in business terms, they call it a VUCA world, volatility, 
uncertainty, yes. <clears throat> complexity yes. and ambiguity. And if ever we were in a space of that, the volatility, the uncertainty, the complexity and the ambigu ambiguity, now would be the time. How has that changed the kind of work that you're doing when it comes to this idea of trends analysis? It, it has got so much more complex. So, so I think, you know, in the maybe the first five years, um, you know, of the business, it was just kind of spotting things that were disrupting. And, and at, at, at that stage, it was mostly technological disruptions. If you think about it, um, you know, concepts like um, e-hailing, you know, businesses like Uber, Airbnb, all of those kind of things, those were, were sort of coming to the fore and, and, and really sort of disrupting business or changing business models. What we hear now, and, and specifically, and I think it's really important to factor in the two years of, of the pandemic, because once we've come out of, of 2020 and 2021 lockdown, um, the, the, the two big themes that emerge, and, and, and I, I do this, this module of business of innovation at, at business schools as well, and I say to companies, the, what's emerged is, is A, is, is meeting the velocity of change. So, so a lot of things have accelerated in terms of technology, but in terms of concepts of working from home, sort of work flexibility, a lot of new things have arrived. And a lot of things that were at a tipping point in 2019 um, were sort of forgotten because the pandemic just uh, dominated the world stage. But those undercurrents have really, really pushed through. So we're talking sustainability. And I say if 2020 was the year of the pandemic, <clears throat> then 2021 was the wake-up call for climate change. Because then we started to see it wasn't so much, oh, just someone's hugging a tree or it's a Greta Thunberg, you know, uh, doing climate change protests. But it was extreme weather that really started impacting global economies. Mm. And then we've got a war. So geopolitics starts coming into those things. And and so in, in, in the corporate terms, you know, um, everyone understands the term, you know, CSI. So you've got your corporate social responsibility. But now there's a there's a different thing. It's called CPR, which is um, not quite resuscitation, but it, it almost is. But it is about brands being forced to take on a political role. So CPR stands for corporate political responsibility. That was never in the picture ten years ago, and and so you've just got this thing with geopolitical things which are affecting supply chains, your um, extreme weather and climate change. Ex you know also impacting. Um, how you, you know, if it's too hot, then you can't put workers out, you can't deliver goods because the the the, the tar on the road starts melting. There's just all of these factors that, that just weren't there. And then, of course, just sort of socioculturally, identity politics, the, the you know, the being blamed for being woke, all of those kind of identity politics have really ramped up. So it's a, it's a really, really complicated world. Um, that we're in. But um, nevertheless, uh, ever hopeful me, um, very, very good for what we do at Flux because it just becomes a lot more interesting and a lot more more layered. So so we, yeah, there's a lot more to, to explain to, to our clients. And certainly as you speak about these things, we are reading about Japan. There's a huge typhoon, Nanmadol, which is heading towards Japan and uh, millions of people have been told to evacuate in that process. So it's uh, not something that is just <laughs> Uh, in our imagination as well. Dion, we're going to go to a break, but when we come back from the break, I'd really like to um, talk to you about your own personal shift and change that you've been involved in. It's something that I'm sure. completely fascinated in. 18 past nine. Michelle Constant on SAFM. And I can promise you, KG, will lift your spirits with Seasons After 10 O'Clock. 
She uh, always has such a great music playlist to keep you going on a Sunday, so listen up for that. Our guest is Dion Chang. He is a strategic thinker. He's also the founder of Flux Trends. But now he's working on something as uh, different as it could possibly be. Dion, talk to us about your new project that you're working on. Um, okay, so before I delve into that, Michelle, the, I just want to preface this by saying, um, and, and this is just, I think, what we need to all really understand is that the last two years we've all processed some kind of a life audit um mm. and or or had some existential crisis in some way or another um so mine just happened to be a, a rather large one um but I, I think it's also reflective of, of of really what's happened but i'm just completing my training to become a end of life companion doula um, and some people call it uh, what it is it's a, a death doula um, but you essentially help people that are coming to the end of life um, as they know it. So the term doula, now many people may know it as the doula who is someone who is like a midwife who may help with bringing someone into the world. This is really a midwife helping someone leave the world at a time when it may be difficult. Yes, so um, a lot of people will, 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 would have heard of a, of, a, of a birth doula, but not really of a death doula. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it's the same principle, but just at the opposite end of the spectrum. So a birth doula is a non-medical practitioner. Um, a doula will work with a, a midwife and will work with a medical team <clears throat> to help uh, that person provide emotional support um, and just maybe some practical support as well. So um, if it is on the opposite end of the scale, an end-of-life uh, companion doula really is there as a, also a non-medical practitioner, but also to there to help that person and that family um, have uh, what is called a, a peace-filled transition. So it, it's just kind of taking the concept of, of, of transitioning or dying, um, depending on what your cultural beliefs or, or standpoints are, <clears throat> and then to, to really assist uh, them doing that in, in the most sort of dignified um, and, and, and peace-filled way. You say that it's not a medical um, process. So are you saying... Is this something like someone who is going into hospice and has hospice care? Or how, how, how would you describe it? Um, yeah, so, um, you know, what, what, what a doula does, and, and um, I just started reading up a lot about it because uh, I, just, I just started getting these, these nudges from the universe and, and, and I just started coming across a whole lot of things, which is really why I started looking into it properly. Um, but but a, a, a doula really is there for that that emotional support. So mm-hmm. so if a pers- if a patient is um, say terminal, you would be able to help them with. Um, uh, there's a, there's a document called Advanced Directive about sort of you know if I if I reach a stage of not being able to communicate, these are my medical wishes, and I do not want this. I do want that, or mm-hmm. or, or those kind of things. Um, the, the generally it is about more assisting with with just maybe some ad- administrative administrative stuff. And then the the thing that really started raising the hairs on my my arm when when I read about this, I was reading an article and they said, you know, what what do doulas do? And um, one of the women in this article said it can be as simple as you know helping um, rehome somebody's cats um, after they've they've died. And I I I'd done that. And when I started my training, they they said, you know, you didn't just decide to come and do this. It's it, you know you it, it is it is a calling, and you mm. will have understood that you've been doing some sort of this work throughout your life and then when I started looking back at 
everything that I've, you know, the, the, the way in which I sort of put my spiritual beliefs, all of those kind of things together, I realized that I had actually been doing this. And I have, um, you know, had rehomed um, uh, uh, an elderly friend who passed away, her two cats, because I knew she was just so, so desperately, would be so desperately worried about that. So it is it is that kind of stuff. But it, it's really emotional support and, 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 and ensuring that that person is, is is really comfortable. So so you you work with a family and um, just say somebody is at home and they're wanting home care. Um, it's everything about the ambience of the room. It's about um, you know it's kind of just being there, just sitting there, um, and just being that 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 buffer. There's a there's a terminology in in the, in the do the work is you meet that person where they are. So you 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 can't. Um, again, it's a non-medical uh, role, so you, you can't uh, advise on, on medical procedures. You can't say, I think you should do this or you can't do that. You really, really just meet that person really there and you, whatever their needs are, um, you, you assist um, as, as much as you can with, with that. Dion, you, you spoke about the fact that you had a major change, that this was part of your life-changing moment as part of COVID and that. What was it that made you decide this is actually what I'd like to do? I mean... It's not the first thing that would come to mind for many people, but I'm interested to know what it was for you. Yeah, so I, I don't think there's there was one specific um, moment that that it really sort of struck home. But but I do think um, I started reading something about the the increase of doulas um, during the the pandemic. So it's just sort of you know part of the research that I do, and I started reading about about doulas. But then I started hearing about other people that that were doulas, and and like I said. You know, once that first article came through, there was just this floodgate of, of um, I, I also don't think there's, there's such a thing as too many coincidences. And, and just reading material just started to come across my path. I started to meet people. I started to chat to people. And, and all these paths started leading to one place. And that sort of train of thought become, became even more and more clear. And when I started to, to just find out really what, if is this what I wanted to do and, and what, is, what does the job entail, it just became more and more crystallized and it started feeling more and more comfortable. So even now, um, while I'm still finishing the, the training, I have a, you know, the certificates of competencies and everything. I'm, I haven't quite registered yet because I, I want to take this thing really slowly. It's, it's, not, a, it's not something you, you do very lightly and, and just sort of you know, a little hobby that you do. So I, I, I want to take it very, very slowly. And so I've just been you know, chatting to people that might need some help and advice. And, and just in those sessions, um, it just feels really, really comfortable. So it's just something that, that it, it's like a little second skin that you're starting to settle into um, and, and, and it doesn't feel very jarring to me or very unusual to me. And, and it's strange. A lot of my friends who know me well, uh, when I tell them and they get over the, the shock that it's, it's, it's you know, quite a, a different pathway to go, um, they then say to me, that actually makes quite a lot of sense. You have the personality to be able to do that and to, you know, to, to be empathetic as well as, as objective to, to people. Diana talks to um, two thoughts as you talk about this. The one is that I feel that maybe over the last couple of years, the word that has popped up in so many different ways has been grief. Yes. But conversely, the other word that has popped up has been gratitude. And I'm thinking of the Chimananda um, uh, Ngozi Adichie book, Notes on Grief, where she talks about the passing of her father. But I'm also thinking of the um, Oliver Sacks book, Gratitude, where he talks about his own passing. So he mm. has cancer, and as he is dying, he writes this book. And 
I'm wondering if the role of a an important death doula is someone who is constantly weighing up both grief and gratitude, both for the person who is um, crossing over, if one wants to call it that, but also yes. for the family around that person as well. Yes, I think you really hit the nail on the head there because it is, it is, it is. I think managing that that grieving process. Um, I think one of the big things that really attracted me to this was the the different ways in which different cultures see death and and i'm generalizing now but but if you kind of look at asian cultures you look at indian cultures there's a very very different way of of sending somebody off of of celebrating their 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 lives whereas perhaps generally speaking in the the west western cultures it it is something that you you hide you you don't talk about uh, or, or it becomes quite hysterical so that for me was was a was a good inflection point of saying there, there, there is a way of, of, of helping people and, and managing that, that 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 grieving process to to enable it to become that peaceful way of of, of a journey of a, of a transition. And you talk about that gratitude, but but one of the things that 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 doulas do for people, um, you know, a to sort of almost uh, maybe distract them from 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 what's happening around them, but also to give them a little bit of that that hope or, or, or purpose. Um, even if it is uh, in, in those last last days or weeks, um, to to say you know um, what kind of legacy project would you like to do and, and and work on? So you you assist people to do a legacy project. So for example, to say somebody has um, so, so very young young children, and and obviously um, if, if if one of the parents is is that terminally ill patient, then then they would be thinking, you know, I I would love to see my my children grow up. I'm not going to see my children grow up. I'm not going to be able to to do all of the life markings and the, the coming of age um, events and everything. So, so how do you assist that person with, with doing that? And, and you do that by, by setting sort of different legacy projects and, 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 you know, writing notes to, to their future selves on their 16th birthday or, or something like that. So you do start turning that grief into something vaguely a little bit more positive, but, but a little bit more purposeful. So, so that when you do, um, you know, eventually transition, then you, you've, you, you, you have some peace of mind with it. So, so my personal mantra as a doula is going to be um, leave nothing left unsaid so that you it is what I'm going to try and, and, mm. and do to, to the people that I'm helping. We're chatting to Dion Chang, who is talking about training to become a death doula. We've got a couple of comments. Uh, Lynn saying Dion would thrive in Port Alfred. We're a town of pensioners with the average age of 80s. There are some sad stories. These people just need care, gentleness, understanding, and lots of love. They come from all walks of life and now are ending their days here. Janet van Eeren tweeting to say, uh, it's a privilege to see a person through to the other side. I've been there with my grandmother, my stepfather, and my mother's final moments. And each one was filled with a terrible intimacy. And I felt honored to be with them as they passed. Great work, Dion Chang. I think that's an interesting uh, term, terrible intimacy. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems appropriate as well because it covers so much of what you've been talking about. Dion, your second choice of song is Feet Don't Fail Me Now by Joy Crooks. Why? Well, firstly, we, we're coming into, well, we are in, in Heritage Munch, and, and Joy Crooks um, was something that came on my radar, gosh, uh, probably last year, sort of during the pandemic and lockdown, sort of listening to different music. Um, <clears throat> and I love her music. So just like Arlo Parks, I, I seem to migrate to to female artists and female uh, vocalists as well. And, and Joy Crooks, she's been compared to a, 
um, a kind of an Amy Winehouse uh, type of music. Yes. But I also love the fact that she's uh, she's a Brit, she's a Londoner, but her heritage is Irish Bangladeshi. And she writes songs about that sort of in-between-nowhere space, uh, which which I identify a lot with as well, just with my heritage and, and sort of, you know, um, being Asian in, in South Africa, all of those kind of things. So, mm. And I also thought, you know, with hope, um, feet don't fail me now. <laughs> it's quite a good mantra <laughs> for a Saturday or a Sunday. <laughs> Let's go for it. Fabulous track, Joy Crooks and Feet Don't Fail Me Now. She was uh, nominated, I'm not sure if she won, um, the Best Brit Award a year or two ago. Um, fantastic song. Dion Chang is our guest, and we really appreciate you having on the line. Dion, I do think it's kind of a perfect song to move into your first guest, uh, Megan Kruger, director for Infinity Culinary School. And the reason I'm thinking it's the perfect song is that if there's anything a chef says in their training and as they move forward in a restaurant and otherwise is feet don't fail me now. I've always had an interest in the kinds of shoes that (laughs) chefs have to wear in order to survive long, long night on their feet. Dion? Yes, hello. Sorry. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I just I've I've known Megan for for a long time, and and uh, I I really wanted to highlight uh, the the work that that she did uh, does for the Infinity Culinary School. So, um, you know, if uh, people aren't aware of it, um, it is a nonprofit uh, chef schooling based in Cape Town, and and what they really do is provide um, obviously cooking schools schools, and and they train professional to, to be professional chefs. Um, to move into the hospitality industry. Um, and there's been a lot of success stories. And I just think, um, especially in this time, you know, when oh, people's fundings just don't go through and uh, mm. do that, this is such a valuable, valuable work that, that we need to do. Um, and being a foodie, of course, uh, I completely, completely <laughs> encourage uh, chefs to be trained. Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hello, Dion and Michelle. So let's talk about the work that the Infinity Culinary School does. Um, it is a not-for-profit, um, yes. which starts to also look at questions of civil society as well. And it, it, it really aims to bridge a gap between poverty and work. Talk to us about how you started the organization in the first place. The, the school was started by my boyfriend. Uh, 13 years ago, he was working with, he was staying in a guest house and he made friends with a chef there and at that friend's dream to start a, a cooking school. And so he came home and he said, I've got to help this person start a cooking school, such a lovely guy, what do you think? Uh, should I help? So I said, well, let me tell you what it means to help in South Africa. <laughs> and then we started to talk about it and he was struck and, and then it started, we started with very little, a small amount of money from, from a, a, a foundation, 18,000 rand and that was 13 years ago, we turned 13 on the, this month on the 14th and we graduated about 600, close to 600 people of which 90% are current, over 90% are currently employed. And uh, yesterday was the graduation of two classes, 35 and 36, because we haven't had a graduation for, for since the pandemic started. So it's, in, it's intentionally to take disadvantaged people and put them in the classroom and kitchen for three months, put them in an internship and then find them a job. And, um, and that's worked really, really well for us. You, um, you, you say that 90% of those that graduate are able to find work. How do you put them into jobs, and what are those uh, work opportunities that are created for them? 
we have a wonderful, we have a manager who who was a chef, so she knows a lot of the chefs in Cape Town. And even right at the beginning, when we didn't know really what we were doing, um, we had these chefs who would take our students and give them a chance in the kitchen. And so they are employed from the Mount Nelson to Southern Sun Kitchens to. Uh, you know, the black sheep in Cape Town, the people are employed all over the Cape. Some people come in from Johannesburg um, and and then go back and work in Joburg. So because our, our people are well-trained and and got a strong work ethic and um, you know, strict values, there's a big demand for them now. In the beginning, we used to beg people to take them, and now we, we're sort of trying to keep up with the, with the demand. So we very feel very lucky and grateful. Dion, I'm interested in uh, your choice of the Infinity Culinary School as uh, your first choice. And, and the reason I say that is I'm thinking about the work that you have done as a trends analysis. And you mentioned it up front where you said initially trends analysis was, was so much around um, technology and the future. And I do, I remember attending quite a few of your talks where it literally was about the role of technology as we move into the future. This is something very, very different. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to imagine how you weave this into your role as a trend analyst looking at issues of work, et cetera, in South Africa. Yeah, and there's, this, um, there's quite a few um, threads to that, Michelle. So, I mean, firstly, I think in terms of the food industry, I think that's that's matured and, and evolved um, drastically and rapidly over the over the past decade. So, you know, so it's so a food culture wherever you go. Um, you know, it, it's so intertwined with tourism now. So you go to a place, you you actually go, and, and I'm one of those foodies that will actually go on a on a on a food tour experience in in a different city, and I'm just going to you know eat my way through a city rather than sort of see the the traditional sites. So I think in terms of of, of skills, that that's the one thing. It's a, it's a good sector to do. And the other thing that I'm really really passionate about is um, what the World Economic Forum is trying to do, um, and they and they're trying to do this by 2030 or so, is is provide millions and millions of jobs around the world. But what they they are are proposing is a, a mind shift to micro credentials, and 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 this I can talk you know just just at at ad nauseum on because for me I get really really frustrated because I see the future of work and I see where the future of of, of decentralized work is and what it is and the the need for for these micro credentials or, or or short courses and skills that you can you can accumulate. Whereas in the corporate world, as we know it, we are there's a there's a term for it. It's called over credentializing um, or, or, or degree inflation, where you are expecting people to have an academic background for a job that doesn't actually require that academic background. So we're yeah. we're in a again we're in this the sort of no no man's land where the old world and the new world are not meeting and and, and chatting. So the infinity culinary uh, you know training that 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 these these guys get. Um, speaks to those micro credentials and 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 upskilling people in a far more rapid way and 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 in a in a much more uh, you know in sectors that that really really grow and they have an impact and a ripple effect because if that you know is linked to the tourism in industry then then that all just grows exponentially together. So okay, I just want to tease those two concepts out. So over credentializing would be where we are forcing people to go into tertiary degrees, university degrees, in order to get a job in a large corporate with a degree which actually they don't necessarily need in order to get that job. 
Yes, absolutely. So we, we're starting to see that um, uh, big corporations, multi, multinational corporations around the world are starting to review that. We haven't mm. got uh, to that stage in South Africa yet. And, and when I do go into a corporate boardroom, I, I do challenge them. And I say, you know, if the Japanese space program now no longer requires a degree, why on earth are we insisting on this? And mm. especially with this huge youth unemployment problem there, the, this World Economic Forum module of you know, micro-credentials, so it's a short course that can be coding, it can be even volunteering at a food bank, you get administrative uh, experience, you get a whole lot of things, and they call it a digital backpack. So mm. you collect these things, and, and if you think about a, a country like South Africa, you you push through people within a, in a, a, a you know, space of a few months, rather than a four-year base degree, where after that you still go, and we know it, it happens in South Africa, that, that parents, you know, uh, in many cases, the first child in that family that to goes to tertiary education, um, to to sacrifice everything and then get that piece of paper that doesn't actually give them um, you know the jobs about half a million people that uh, applied for the government uh, relief grant that 350 rand during the pandemic half a million of those had um, uh, tertiary education. So essentially, so micro-credentials are, are really starting to really engage with the concept of lifelong learning that as you move through life you do shorter courses, smaller courses, maybe as important courses. We're not saying they're less important, but that they just, as you say, add to the backpack of your knowledge. Yes. So, so especially, you know, what, what Megan was saying, these, these, uh, these new budding chefs are, are because of that training and because of, of, of the Infinity School, then yeah. they, they understand what the quality is. But those chefs could go into that and then suddenly – you know, decide that they, they want to either specialize, maybe they go into the pastry section, but maybe they become front of house, maybe they, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of things. So it's, it's a real amazing foot in the door into a fantastic sector that has got huge opportunities and, and many, many other trajectories that you could use as well. So that's why I really like that. And I like food. <laughs> and I was uh, interested in the, in the fact, I mean, I just read, I think it was in the last couple of days, that Fane in Cape Town has just been announced as one of the top, I think, 50 restaurants in the world or something like that. Always encouraging to hear that for sure. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. We are going to move, Dion, to your second guest. It seems to fit in appropriately. <laughs> we're talking about food and now we're talking about uh, meat, but in a very, very different way indeed. Your second guest is Brett Thompson, who's the CEO of Mzanzi Meat. What is that and why? All right. So firstly, thanks to Megan uh, for, for joining us. And uh, I thought I would link the two. Um, you know, as I said, I like food. But also, this is one of the trends that I've been tracking for for some time now. So I was really, really happy to find out because I always get accused of saying, well, Dion, you always just track these global trends. It doesn't have any relevance in, in South Africa. And it's not really true because um, there are actually uh, now two meat companies, uh, but Mzanzi Meat is the one that we concentrate on, um, that uh, are producing lab-grown protein. So lab-grown uh, meat. Uh, so you take a, a cell, I'm sure can explain that a lot more, but um, you are not, uh, so are you still using a cell of, a, of, of, a, of an animal, but you are not killing that animal to, to do that. So it's a, it's a sort of a, uh, you know, somewhere in between, um, you know, the sort of uh, being a vegetarian, but not kind of just uh, not only eating meat, but you are eating lab grown meat. Um, it might sound 
quite bizarre to some people, but um, I've been, like I said, I've been tracking it for a while, and I was really happy to to come across and chat to, to Brett, um, and uh, he's going to be part of our uh, one of our innovation tours soon. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think maybe Brett should explain the, the kind of the process of, of what lab-grown meat is. Brett is the CEO of Mzanzi Meat Company. He's the co-founder of the Credence Institute. Brett Thompson, thank you so much for joining us. Michelle and Dion, thanks very much for having me. Good morning. Okay, explain in layman terms, lab-grown meat, what is it? Sure thing. So lab-grown meat, or how we call it, is, or we like to call it, it's cultivated meat. Um, it's essentially the process that Dion has just started to describe, where what we do, uh, we're based here in Cape Town, um, and we take some cells from, from animals in nearby farms and sanctuaries, and all, we're up to, all we are up to is reproducing, re- the conditions that are found in the animal's body of the animal. So okay, wait, Brett, your, your, your phone is sounding a little quirky. Maybe don't crackling. move around. Crackling. Okay. So you re- okay. you said you're repurposing. Reproducing the reproducing. conditions. Yeah. The, the conditions that are found in an animal's body, yeah. but we do it outside of the animal's body. So um, we're, we take those cells, we feed them a... The nutrients, so it's nutrients that your body needs, that my body needs, that a cow's body needs. It's, it's all very much the same when you are a mammal. Um, and then you keep it at about 37 degrees. Yeah. Uh, you, regu- you regulate, or at 37 degrees, I, I think we all know what, what temperature that is. And um, you regulate it with carbon dioxide and, and oxygen, again, simulating what's happening in the body. Um, and after about two or four, about a week or so, we start seeing these cells start duplicating. <clears throat> and they start duplicating exponentially, and mm-hmm. eventually they start forming um, in some. Uh, we call it a it's a it's a fermenter, similar to what you would see uh, at a microbrewery. Mm. Um, it's these sort of giant vats, um, but we start seeing these uh, cells develop into sort of strands of muscle tissue that eventually we will then harvest. Um, and at the moment, um, we are then we then blend that um, harvested muscle and fat. Um, with a plant-based protein. So this is, is this in theory or is this currently being done? But, so we've, so we've, um, April, were the, uh, we were the first one to be able to produce cultivated meat in Africa. Um, it's been done uh, the first time ever. It was done in about 2013 by a Dutch scientist um, where he made a burger. Um, and we were the first ones to start a company here in South Africa, but then also go on to produce uh, the, the prototypes that we're doing at the moment, uh, we're in the scale-up phase to go from being able to produce you know, a few patties to eventually produce a few tons of meat uh, in the next 24 months, hopefully. Uh, I want to ask you, Dion, have you tasted any of these patties, these burger patties, being a foodie and a food lover? Haven't I've uh, done all the insects and the entomologies, but I haven't done that. And I'm dying to 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 try it. Um, but can I just also add to what Brett was saying? You know, yeah. the, we, like I said, I've been I've been tracking this internationally. So so there is an Israeli company called Future Meat, and there they've been uh, there's quite a lot of this production of of cultivated or lab grown uh, protein there. And and the reason why it is so strongly on my radar specifically this year is they've managed to uh, bring the costs down. So so like Brett said, you know, the, the Dutch scientists did this uh, almost a decade ago. It cost, I don't know, millions to, to, to be able to produce a, a small little meat patty. Um, but this company has just recently, within 10 months, 
brought the cost of creating this is um, a, a piece of uh, lab-grown chicken um, from in dollars it was about sort of seven dollars something or other uh, down to one dollar seventy and that's a very significant tipping point in terms of commercial production and as mm. as uh, uh, Brett says you know they've, they've they've got the science together they've they've, they've done it they can they can, they can do it um, but now it's to start scaling it and and, and make it more commercially um, available so essentially it's it's growing meat in a laboratory and it is real meat but it is not real animal if that makes sense well i could just to clarify two things or one or two things i really do want to touch back on the taste because i think it's a point you you raised and i think it's very important the price is also i mean price is a massive factor particularly when you're looking at something like a commodity item which is meat uh when it comes to uh, at the moment we are doing it in small scale so we are in an r d facility uh but as as we grow, we, the, the product will actually be grown in a food factory. It will be something similar um, similar to a brewery. Uh, there will still be a laboratory facility, but mm. uh, we'll move from being something that could be seen as lab-grown to, to um, grown in a food facility. And that's the key component for bringing the price down, as Dion is saying. If you do it in a small scale, you use lab-grade, uh, we use lab-grade facilities type, um, whether it's the machinery, but also the ingredients that we use for the media. Um, but when you move into food grade, it starts becoming uh, the price points actually drastically reduced. I mean, we've we've had two batches of burgers, so version one and version two, let's say, and both times we've been able to reduce to essentially a twenty-fold reduction in the price. Uh, still, is a bit too expensive, and the companies around the world are working on reducing it, including us. Mm. Um, but the the final component that you, you mentioned was is it, is it meat? Well. It's exactly the same. I mean, we've actually done the test to look at whether or not you can call it, uh, once you've taken the cells, can you call it beef? Well, it's it's derived from animals. It's, it's, it is animal cells. It's not plant-based. And I think that's also a crucial difference um, that you need to take into account, particularly if you're trying to make meat and not make a, repli- a replica of it, because what we're doing is making meat. It's not an alternative. We're going to leave it there because we do need to like uh, have the last bit of the conversation with uh, Dion. But but what a fascinating conversation. And I think that we've certainly, oh, I suppose I, the question I would ask you, um, Brett, is we know there's been huge debate and um, legal cases against the naming of meat when it is not meat. But in your case, this is meat. How are you feeling about those legal cases? Well, it's a very interesting discussion. It, it happened, um, I used to live in Germany in 2017. Those conversations happened then. Uh, it's happened, I, I've also worked in the alternative protein industry for about 10 plus years, so working in plant-based meat alternatives. So my, you know, my background is very much to say that meat is uh, what, what a, I think consumers do understand plant-based meats and conventional meats. I think it's a bit of an overreach uh, potentially from the department to say that this is misleading. Um, in terms of our uh, our approach, we've had discussions with the with the, both the meat industry um, and the department to say, look, what we are doing is derived from animals. This is a meat product. Um, it does. We are saying that it does align with what is the existing legislation says for um, processed meats. And so, if we are able to sort of move. Um, with the department of mind and with the industry, um, we're very confident that when we start uh, bringing our products to market, uh, hopefully next year, that we will be aligned and there won't be any issues when we um, are making our meat. Fantastic. We're going to leave it there with Brett Thompson, CEO of Mzanzi Meat Co. Um, Dion, we've got, we've got a voice message we'd just like to play for you. Um, if we could just listen up. 
Michelle, please ask Dion if he's in favour of euthanasia. Mike Islanen. There we go. Dion, that takes you uh, back to the circle of conversation. We started, I suppose, the circle of life. We started the conversation looking at the work that you were doing as a doula in terms yeah. of the passing of life. What's your take on that? That's a very tricky one. Um, so as a doula, um, in terms of that professional role, um, I can't advocate that. Um, on a personal note, um, I do I do believe that one should have the right uh, for, for for self uh, euthanasia, and and I do think there are are cases when where you know it's just unbearable pain or whatever. It, I think that is the the best way. So so I do support it, but as a doula, um, as I said, it's a non medical role. I'm not allowed to give my advice or opinion. I'm just there to hold the space. Um, so I just need to separate the the personal beliefs and 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 what the role of the doula does. But I I I do I do support that. Dion, let's close off with this role. I mean, isn't it interesting that um, in telling the story of where you've come from and where you're going to, we've travelled back into the idea of um, life, which would be micro-credentials and learning, to a future that is a very different one to that we've had in the past, which is around um, new meat, protein building, uh, creating and reimagining food systems. How does that then take you in closing to the work that you're doing now? Um, in, in terms of the doula work, Michelle? Yes, or, yeah. I just think there's, you know, I started Flux Trends 16 years ago as an information distillation service. So I, I thought even back then that there was too much information. And I just think now the more that we move into more mechanized things, ways of doing autonomy, fourth industrial revolution, robotics, um, you know, lab grown protein, it's just a, it's a, it's a really, it, it, it starts spinning people's minds out. So, and I think what I'm feeling as well, and, and I know that that's a, sort of the equal and opposite reaction that you, that you do get is the bringing the humanity back into a, a, a very digitized world. And, and we are hurtling into, you know, this, this uh, meeting, trying to meet this velocity of change of technologies and new systems and all of those kind of things. But at the same time, as, you know, what I said earlier was um, we need to humanize businesses. And I think at the, fu the fundamental part of this is being that doula is, is to, to bring that humanity back into, into things and, and to say to, and to stop because, you know, life just passes us by. But to stop with that person, with that person's family, and say, "Let's hold the space. Let's just make sure that it's, uh, you know, as, as 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 comfortable and dignified as we can we can make it, um, so that that when you do." And I've heard as the as the one person that sent sent the message there, you know, and it was uh, what was the word terrible intimacy. Um, but everybody that that I've spoken to who has been in that space, not necessarily you know having trained for it, but just because of its family and everything, have said what a special and sacred moment that 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 really really is. And I think I want people to to be able to feel that there is that sense of of anchoring of of of, of it, it doesn't have to be hysterical. And and I think we live in this hysterical world. Like I said, um, you know, alles unterafel, everything is unraveling. Um, so so I think that is, I think, an overarching and maybe an, uh, an undercurrent to why I wanted to do this was also to just to bring some some stability and, and, and humanity into, into the process. It seems to me that you would be bringing stability and humanity into the end of life but that you may also be able to suggest and encourage people to start to bring it into their life in general, given so much of what you've said. 
Yeah. Um, so, so what I wanted to also clarify, and and that's what I learned, and that also opened up a whole new spectrum. You know, when I started training, um, they said to me, you know, um, end of life um, companion or end of life doesn't only necessarily mean death. So, end of life as you know it is is kind of the the starting point. So, you know, whether you've been through a divorce, you might have lost your job, you've emigrated, um, you've just had your first baby. That is all end of life as you knew it. So it, it doesn't have to just be that that death doula. So that's why um, we sort of expand the term and say it's an end of life companion, but end of life as you as you know it. <clears throat> Which then, if I bring it back to, to to what you were saying, Michelle, when I started thinking about what we do at Flux, it just struck me that that is actually what we've been doing for 16 years. We advise companies of old, outdated thinking and. Uh, processes so it's end of life of, of that kind of system or, or that way of thinking and it's bringing in new ways of thinking so so there, there are little overlaps into that um but yes but the the, the real sort of uh, spiritual work that that happens with uh, the, the doula work um yeah like i said feels very very comfortable and i think it's very right for now Dion Chang, our guest for today. Thank you so much for joining us. That's it from us. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye.